right, guys, this time we're off to Washington, D.C. We're going to get a tour of the Capitol with David Barton from Wall Builders. Uh, I guess we'll let you know what we think. If they still got it all figured out, the Constitution is still the way to go. I think it is. What do you think? I hope so. I think so. Washington, D.C. Oh my goodness, what an incredible place to come. Uh, we're going to get to go on a tour with David and Tim Barton from Wall Builders Ministries. Love their stuff. If you haven't checked them out, you got to check them out, wallbuilders.com.org. They're rebuilding the website. But anyway, um, we're about to go see the whole Capitol. Yep, excited. Behind the scenes tour. First up... time for me. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. And this is on the 28th anniversary of my wife coming to America, yep. which is really, really cool. What a timing. Yep. Oh my goodness. Pretty what cool. I, this is what I do to celebrate her 28th <laughs> anniversary. <Yep. laughs> okay, maybe that just happened to work out. But uh, but hey, we want to invite you to go on this tour with us and let's learn from the other pastors and from the speakers and from Tim and David Barton themselves about America's heritage, where we've, where we've come from, and about where we're going and what you need to do about it. So I'll tell you this, pray. Pray, pray, pray for America. Let's go on this journey together. We're excited. Come Let's on. go. There's probably about 120 statues here. Up to a fourth of those at any given time are ministers of gospel. Now, there's no way that ministers represent 25% of the population of America, but they do have the influencers. And it's significant that in the founding era, these are the guys that were so key, so important, and they were the ones that were honored by their states. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. So let me put it in perspective. We're right under the rotunda, the big part of the Capitol. This is the basement under it. These columns you see here hold up the floor of the rotunda. We'll end up up there shortly. Uh, but this, this is actually the third part of the Capitol was built. We'll talk about it later. But the first part of the Capitol was built open in, in December of 1800. It was very small. It was a square box, smaller than a lot of your churches were. 1807, they built another duplicate of that across the way. And that's where they moved the house in 1807. And so the house side, that's, that was built in 1807. But again, it was just a small square box. So in 1807, the Capitol was two separate square buildings. There was a cow pasture between them. It's called Jenkins Hill. And you literally had to walk out in the cow pasture to get from the house to the center. There was a wooden boardwalk they built that would get you there. Then in 1812, they started trying to connect those two separate buildings, and that was the rotunda. In 1815, the British came and burned the Capitol, so they knocked the rotunda down, started rebuilding in 1817. They finished it in 1824. So in 1824, the Capitol was the, the rotunda in the middle and the two buildings on the side for the House and Senate, but it didn't have a high dome yet. It was a very short, flat dome. And it was that way for quite a while, and then they, they added, in, in 1857, they added the house, which we'll go into later. So if you watch C-SPAN 1, you see the house that was added in 1857. And 1859, they added the Senate. And so if you see C-SPAN 2, the Senate, that's 1857. And they put the big dome on it in 1863. So it took them 70 years to build the Capitol, so we know. So we're right dead center. 
Um, behind you, some of you will see a white stone with a star in the middle of it. That is the center of Washington, D.C., the center of the Capitol, center of everything. It's back there on the ground. So where we are now, this is one of four locations in the Capitol where there are a lot of statues. You see the statues around you here. So this, this crypt area where we are now, um, in 1863, Congress passed a law that says every state can display two state hero statues here at the Capitol. So what you've got is every state has two, capitals, two statues here. This one's Pennsylvania, that one's Massachusetts, etc. And states can change them as they want. They can move them in and out. Um, North Carolina just pulled out a Confederate general and putting Billy Graham in as their new oh, statue. Oh, 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 so they, there are, they can change the statues as they wish, that's fine. Um, that means there's about a hundred statues here from the states. There's other statues here like of George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, others. There's probably about 120 statues here. It's interesting that up to a fourth of those at any given time are ministers of the gospel. Now, there's no way that ministers represent 25% of the population of America but they do of the influencers. And it's significant that in the founding era, these are the guys that were so key, so important, and they were the ones that were honored by their states. They would not be honored by most states today because most states don't even know who they are. So let me start right here with this guy. This is John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. Uh, he is actually out of Pennsylvania, but he pastored two churches in Virginia. Two churches pastor in Virginia. He was a he was a German-speaking Lutheran. He pastored a Lutheran church, and he also was he pastored an English-speaking Anglican church or Episcopalian church. So he's a pastor of two churches at the same time. He pastors out in Woodstock, Virginia, and he was also a member of the state legislature in Virginia, which is very common. The ministers were part of the state legislature of all the states. So, and the the legislative session for Virginia happens in December and January back then. So in December of 1775 and January of 1776, he's down at Williamsburg, the state legislature, and they hear all the stuff that's going up in New England. They, they've got um, Lexington, and they've got Concord, and they got Bunker Hill, all the stuff happening. And then it starts spreading into Virginia, the, the gunpowder incident. And so suddenly these Virginians are being threatened the same way that the folks in Massachusetts were. So when the session's over, he gets on his horse, he rides on horseback back to Woodstock, Virginia. Woodstock, Virginia is where he pastors churches that's out west of here, probably 100 miles or so. Little bitty rural community. And in that community, as he got back, he, uh, he it took him about 120 miles of riding to get back from Waynesburg, several days in the saddle. He gets back, and when he gets back, that Sunday, he mounted the pulpit, and I say mounted the pulpit because pulpits were elevated back then, it was the PA system. So he mounts the pulpit, he has his clerical robes up, and he starts preaching. He chose to preach that morning from Ecclesiastes uh, verses three, chapter three, verses one through eight, where it's, there's a time and a season for everything. Time to be born, time to die. He goes through it, and he gets to, the, to verse eight, and it says there's a time of peace, and there's a time of war. And when he got there, he looked at the congregation, he closed his Bible and said, Brethren, this is no longer the time of peace. This is now the time of war. And he told them the news of what was going on, what was happening everywhere. And, and so what he did at that point was he bowed his head, he had a dismissal prayer. But instead of doing what he always did, which was dismount the pulpit, go off to the restroom and disrobe, he stood up high in front of the congregation, started undressing in front of the congregation. Nobody had seen that before, that's strange. And he jerked off his clerical robes. Underneath it, he's wearing the uniform of an officer in the Continental Army. He's standing there in full dress uniform. He has his musket, he has his pistols, he has his sword. He then dismounted the pulpit and he got down in the church. And it was a one aisle church down the middle. It's a cool church, it's a narrow church. And he got down to the church and he started marching the back and he's talking as he went. He said, Brethren, 
We came to this country to practice our liberties. And if we don't get involved, we're going to lose our liberties. Who's going with me to defend our liberties? 300 men got up and met him back at the church. They became the 8th Virginia Regiment. He became a major general that's a top-ranking general. He's the same level as George Washington, Washington's commander-in-chief, but he's the same two-star general Washington was. He's there all the way through Valley Forge. He and his guys are all the way through Yorktown. And if you go to Valley Forge, you'll actually see the Muhlenberg Barracks. That's what his guys built there. It's been that hard winter Valley Forge. And it's amazing how many of the units in the American Revolution were congregations that went out to defend their rights. And how many pastors were key leaders. Uh, leader of, of forces, New Jersey was, was people like Reverend Jonas Clark. And there's so many of these, these pastors that were leaders because we knew you had to get involved in every arena of life. And so it's interesting, when he got involved in the way that he did, he had a brother up in New York City. His brother, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, heard what Peter was doing down in Virginia and disapproved of it. And so he wrote him a scathing letter said, look, you're a preacher. You're not supposed to get involved in this stuff. You should have stayed in the pulpit. This is wrong for you to do that. John Peter Gabriel wrote back Frederick, and he said, well, he said, I'm a preacher. That's true. He said, but I've got duties to God just like I have duties to men. And he said, I owe duties both to God and to country. And he said, by the way, if it wasn't for people like me going out to defend these rights, you wouldn't even be able to have your church and do what you're doing. And Frederick Augustus kind of blew that off like, yeah, yeah, right. As it turned out, shortly after that, the British came into New York City for the first time. There were 19 churches in New York City. They promptly burned 10 to the ground and desecrated the other nine. So Frederick is now standing outside his own church watching it be burned down in front of him, and he suddenly has an epiphany and decides, you know, maybe I need to get involved too. So he does become involved. He not only writes the original Constitution, first Speaker of the House of Pennsylvania, wrote the original Constitution for Pennsylvania, but he also goes on to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the very first Congress. When Washington becomes President, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg is the Speaker of the House, preacher, Speaker of the House, a guy who didn't want to get involved, now involved. And if you look at the bottom of the Bill of Rights, which gives us all these guaranteed God-given freedoms, there's only two signatures at the bottom. One of them says John Adams, the other says Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. Now, interesting, his brother, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, was also in that first Congress, as were a number of ministers in the first Congress, Benjamin Conti, uh, Hugh Williams, all these other ministers. And they gave us the First Amendment not because it said anything at all about separation of church and state, but because it guaranteed the free exercise of religion, which is what they had gotten involved for. We've let that be taken away, but it's interesting that when you see that, this is why so many of these statues are of ministers, because they were so key to what happened, and they were so actively involved in everything. If it was going on, they were in the middle of it, whether it was legislative or whether it was educational, whether it was political, whether it was science, it didn't matter. They were in everything. So that's, we don't have time to go through all these guys down here. Uh, there's a bunch of guys I can point to uh, over here, uh, Richard Stockton behind us. This, this guy over here is from New Jersey. I'll just tell you a little about him. He's not necessarily a pastor, but just a Christian leader. There's a lot of founding fathers in this particular room. Uh, he was Richard Stockton in New Jersey. He was a speaker house in New Jersey. He voted for the Declaration of Independence, and when he did um, vote for the Declaration, he was from a part of New Jersey that was filled with loyalists. And loyalists were Americans who supported the British, not the Americans. It's interesting. The founding fathers did not call it the American Revolution. They called it the American Civil War because it was often neighbor against neighbor. We had battles in, for example, North Carolina, where 1,300 American loyalists fought 1,100 American patriots. It was America against America. 
support the British, if you're against the British. So that's where a lot of the fighting is going on. So once he signs the Declaration of Independence, uh, some of his neighbors who were loyalists knew where he lived and went to the British and said, hey, one of those guys that signed that treasonous document, the Declaration, he's over here and you can you can have it. They went in at night while he was in bed asleep and they captured him in bed and they took him to the British. And so the British took him and put him in a prison ship, prison ship in Jersey. Uh, out in New York Harbor, the British took a lot of their old used warships, took the cannons out of it, cut the mast off, and just turned them into prison ships. And they were butcher ships, quite, quite frankly. Uh, in the American Revolution, 4,335 people died from bullets on the American side. 11,900 died from prisoner of war treatment. So you're much more likely to die as a prisoner of war than you are in combat. So he is in a prisoner of war ship. He's being abused. He's being starved, everything else. And he's down there just faithfully enduring this. And some of the neighbors got word to Congress and said, hey, did you know that one of your congressmen is over here in this prison ship being tortured and abused? We didn't know that. They investigated, found out that Richard Stockton uh, was indeed being abused. So they, Congress then ordered George Washington to go capture a British general. When you capture him, you start abusing him exactly the same way, and you keep doing it until the British stop abusing Richard Stockton. Well, it lasted for two days. And after two days, the British said, our bad, you can have him back. So they got Richard Stockton back, but at that time, his health was crushed. Uh, he was not the same guy, and he is dying, and he knows he's dying. And so he went home, he had six children, young children, he went home and wrote out his last will and testament. Now it's interesting, last will and testament for us is what you give the kids everything, right? Not for them, it was last will and testimony. Because what he did was he said, he just writes his will, he says, as my children will have frequent opportunity of wondering about the beliefs of their fathers, I'm about to be dead and they're not gonna know me well, he says, I feel I need to, and he just went through and laid out all the doctrines of Christianity. He went through everything from God all the way down to salvation. He told them, you need to live by these doctrines and you need to live a moral life because morals are beneficial for you, not only in the future, they're beneficial right now. I mean, it's just the Father's last words and it is so Christian. It's better than most sermons I've heard. It's better than most salvation messages I've heard. And it came from a founding father. And this was a character of those guys. Sam Adam here is the same way. Uh, Sam Adam is considered one of the most evangelical of the founding fathers. He was a Bible thumper from way back, quite frankly. Uh, you have Charles Carroll over here. Uh, Charles Carroll, very evangelical. Uh, he was a born-again Catholic, and just his writings are so good. So I can go around the room and tell you so many other stories. But just wanted you to see a flavor of what's here in the statues. And so as we go through the statues, you'll probably recognize very few of them. But just understand, every one of these people are really super significant. They're one, they were considered one of the top two people in their states. Now, as states are going more woke, these aren't the guys you want down here anymore. They're replacing them kind of stuff. With good for North Carolina to put Billy Graham in rather than somebody else. So nonetheless, there's just understand when you see these statues, these are significant people, significant stories. We're going to go out. We're going to go up. There's a couple of stairways we're going up. We're going up into the rotunda right above us. We'll meet up there. That is a double dome. If you look over here to the right, that's a bunch of stairs that go up and that winds all the way around until it comes up up top right up where those paintings are. So that painting is the apotheosis of George Washington. George Washington, six groups, kind of, this is Hebrews 12.1, the great crowd, cloud of witnesses looking down at what's happening. Uh, but I will tell you that that up there where Washington is, and this is Washington right in, on the top over on this side up there, you see Washington sitting there. 
that's a lot higher than you think it is. If you were to put the Statue of Liberty inside here right now, it would still be another 30 feet to the top up there. So it is a long way to the top. So what you have is there's, when this, when this opened in 1824, there were four paintings that were hanging on the wall. That's these four paintings over here on this side. I'll take you through them chronologically. Um, you have over here 1492, Columbus uh, discovering the Western world. They get out, they plant a cross, they have a prayer service. They name it San Salvador, meaning Holy Savior, which tells you something about it. Uh, if you go to the left, then you come over here to DeSoto. They are discovering the Mississippi River, and this is Rector and Cross having a prayer service dedicating uh, the, that new land to the Lord. If you come back over here, this is 1607. This is the baptism of Pocahontas. Uh, Pocahontas at this point is the, one of the first converts to Christianity in the New World. Um, she's surrounded here with her, this is her husband, John Rolfe, this is Alexander Whitaker baptizing her here. And it, that's a significant painting because she studied the Bible for more than a year before she became a Christian. And the belief was back in the day, Jesus said, unless you count the cost, you can't be my disciple. So if you wanted to become a Christian, you had to know what you're getting into. You had to study the Bible before you became a Christian, because how else can you count the cost of what you're getting into? So when she became a Christian, she said, look, Bible-wise, real common, when, you, when the Lord touches you and changes you, you get a different name, you know, Abram, Abraham, etc. And so she chose a different name. So she had been the Princess Pocahontas. When she was baptized, she changed her name to Rebecca, a Bible name. The oldest known portrait of her hangs right down the hall in the secretary of the Senate's office, and it says right there, the Princess Rebecca, and she was a princess, Indian princess. She went to Great Britain and met the queen, and she was the Princess Rebecca. She's always the Princess Rebecca, except we call her Pocahontas today. How come we don't call her Rebecca, which is what she named herself? Because if we did, we'd have to talk about her conversion. And you're not supposed to be messing with the indigenous people. We'd, we'd just leave her Pocahontas. So we don't even know the story uh, of what goes on and what actually happened with her and Alexander Whitaker and her husband, John Rolfe. And, and so John Rolfe actually, uh, they one of, one of their descendants was a member of the House of Representatives with the Founding Fathers. John Ro Randolph of Roanoke was, was from Roanoke where they were, and was the descendant of Pocahontas. So there's a lot of fun stuff there. The fourth painting is over here. This is 1620. This is the pilgrims um, on their way to the New World. This is the embarkation of the pilgrims. They were one congregation coming to America. Uh, they wouldn't all fit in one ship, so they put them in two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. And then one of the ships, the Speedwell developed leaks, couldn't come. So they put as many as they could in the Mayflower and brought them across 102 people. And there was a church congregation coming. So this is their pastor, John Robinson, who never made it here with them. He was staying behind the rest of the congregation. We'll get another boat. We'll find another way to get there. They never made it. Uh, so you, you have uh, William Brewster and William Bradford and all these guys here. But notice that everything around the, the, the pilgrims is centered with this Bible right here. Now that Bible, and by the way, just by word of notice, this, this room is so big that it's hard for you to understand how big these paintings are. These paintings are 14 feet high and they're 20 feet wide. So what you're looking at is basically life-size paintings of these people. And so you see how big that Bible is? That Bible, that's a big old Bible. It is known as the world's first pocket Bible. That was it. <laughs> The reason it was, was Bibles before that were called pulpit Bibles. They were four times larger and they were chained to the pulpit of churches. You cannot take them with you. 
So this is a Bible that came out of the Reformation. Reformation is a back to the Bible movement. Man, we've been out of the Bible for a thousand years. Look at all the bad stuff that happened in the Dark Ages. We've got to get back to the Bible. And so you have about 27 reformers over seven different countries saying back to the Bible, back to the Bible. And, and what happens, a lot of these guys try to put it in modern language and get killed for it. So John Hus in Czechoslovakia tries to get the Bible for Czechoslovakians and they burn in the stake. And you've got the English where you've got uh, Wycliffe and, and, and you've got Tyndall and those guys in trouble because trying to do a Bible they can read. Well, that is the first English language Bible right there. It is called a Geneva Bible because it was printed in Geneva in English in 1560. This is one of the Geneva Bibles from that period of time. If I were to open it, you would see exactly the same page you see there. Uh, this is the page that they have it open to in that Bible. Now, this Bible I'm holding is from 1599. It's one of the Bibles that came over with the early settlers and early, early pilgrims and Puritans. And what makes this Bible significant is not the Bible verses itself, but down every column of the Bible is all this commentary from reformers. And the, the, the commentary says, guys, we've been doing this wrong for a thousand years. Look what they say about government, but look what the Bible says about government. Look what they say about law, but look what the Bible says about Look what they say about education. Everything here challenges the culture of the day. And so when the pilgrims came over, they're thoroughly acquainted with how bad the culture is. So what happens is there's six or seven things I can point to real quick that are real easy out of the Bible that they did. Uh, for example, you weren't having elections in the world, in the, in the civilized world, until they got here in 1620 and wrote the Mayflower Compact, and then they started having elections every single year for their leaders. Now try finding annual elections going on in Europe. Everything was modern. They said, no, no, no. Exodus 18.21 says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. We're supposed to be choosing our leaders. How often? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say let's do it every year. So they had annual elections. They chose their leaders every year, and by the way, they said, if you go back to the scriptures, remember that when God established the nation of Israel, he put Moses over the civil stuff and he put Aaron over the church stuff, over the temple stuff. So you had a different leader over each thing. Well, the last thousand years, you've had one leader over church and state. You've had state established churches. So whoever the king is, he's the head of the church or the queen, head of the church. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Italy, it doesn't matter whether you're in France or Spain or Portugal, anywhere else. And they said, all right, here's what we're doing. We're having elections every year for our church leaders as well. So they had every year elections for civil leaders and for church leaders they're the first ones to do biblical separation church and state which is not secularization church and state neither Moses nor Aaron were secular they were both God guys but they had different jurisdictions and so that's what the pilgrims did is and that's where religious liberty and religious toleration comes from is the pilgrims because they don't let the government punish you for what your beliefs are or tell you what your beliefs can or can't be but they had God guys over both so that came from them Exodus 1821 Deuteronomy 115 and 16 Deuteronomy 16 18. So they read the Bible. On top of that, they saw Proverbs 1 7 says, Wait a minute, we're supposed to be educating our kids. And so they passed what was known as the Old Deluder Satan Law, the first public school law in America. And it says it's the chief project of that Old Deluder Satan to keep men from knowledge of the scriptures. We're not going to let that happen. So they put every kid in school. So they started putting girls in school, which wasn't happening at that point in time. Education for men, for some men, you had to be in the nobility of the elite. By the time the pilgrims get down with education, the highest literacy rate for women anywhere in the civilized world is in New England with these guys. So boys and girls all read and they all know the Bible. Um, their governor, William Bradford, said they would spend two to four hours a day in the Bible. That was very common for the Bible. Then when they had a trial known as the witch trials, the witch trials, 27 
27 people put to death over 18 months. But the witch trials were stopped when three Christian leaders went to governor and says, look what the Bible says about due process. You're conducting trials the way they do them in Europe. You need to be doing what the Bible says. They stopped the witch trials. And by the way, in the witch trials in Europe, more than 500,000 people were put to death, 27 in America. So civil, all these things come out of the Bible. So just understand that. Yes. Clarify, you said they did the witch trials. Oh, yeah. They didn't do the witch trials. Witch trials are a generation two after them. These guys get here in 1620, witch trials in 1691, 1692, but it's that colony that did it. But they were so biblically grounded that they got that stopped. And by the way, um, even today, federal practice procedure law book, if you practice federal law, it's a series of volumes that goes from here to the wall. Volume 30 has 20 pages on how the Bible shaped all the due process clauses. The right to confront your accuser is John 8.10. The right to compel witnesses on your behalf is Proverbs 18.17. The right to speak in your own defense, Acts 22.1. All the stuff we've got came out of the Bible, but we're going to talk about the 1619 project, not the 1620 pilgrims. And see, that's what American education does, is find the bad stuff, which happened, but it doesn't talk about the good stuff, which overcame that, because you see, these guys also quoted Exodus 21.6 and made slave trade a capital offense. They did that in 1641, 1646, a ship arrived in Plymouth with slaves on it. They promptly freed the slaves, imprisoned all the slave owners, and sentenced all the slave owners to death. And they quoted Exodus 21:16 as the reason that Bible verse is puts a capital offense on man stealing, which man stealing, going to a country, stealing a person, taking them to another country. So these guys, they're abolition before anybody's thinking about it. And by the way, just to put in perspective, in 1641, a guy named Matthias Azusa, a black man, was elected by a white community to be in the state legislature of Maryland in 1641. I can take you through others. Let's go to Wentworth Cheswell in 1768. He's a black founding father elected in New Hampshire, becomes one of their founding fathers in New Hampshire. He's reelected for the first next 49 years. Did you guys know that by 1876, there had been 1,000 black elected officials in America by 1876? Let's compare that to Great Britain. There's a great civil rights. They did not elect their first black official until 1987. So we have a thousand elected by 18. Have our kids in school heard anything about that? No, they've heard how racist we are. And yes, we had racism because we have humans. Nonetheless, you get the point. So Eisenhower right here, born in 1902. Uh, Eisenhower is obviously one of the great names in, in World War II. Um, probably without Eisenhower, we would not have ended the war as the victory way that we did. He was just a great influence. Eisenhower was born in uh, Denison, Texas. He grew up in Kansas. And when he was about 13 years old, um, this is, I'm sorry, he was born in 1890. This is a painting, of, a photograph of the Eisenhower family. So if you can see the Eisenhower family, what you have is Father David, Mother Ida, and their six boys in the Eisenhower family. This is Dwight right here. See Dwight right here? This is 1902. The next year in 1903, he's on his way home from school. He falls down, he's going back to the farm. He falls down, skins his leg. When he skins his leg, he gets up, parents look at it. Yeah, that's tough, that's all right, shake it off, you'll be okay, just like every good parent. Except back then you might not have been okay because they didn't have any antiseptics or antibodies at that time. 
So what happens, I think that was on a Friday, Sunday, they go to church and he goes in, the parents said, oh, my leg, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad, I, I can't go. And they said, okay, you can stay home from church today. We'll see you when we get back tonight. Tonight, they went to church all day long. So they left in the morning. And when they came back at night, they checked his leg and it was so swollen, they had to cut his shoe off and cut his pants to even look at his leg. And it was streaked and it was just dark coming up the leg and going into the chest and it's really bad. So they call the, the family doctor, Doc Conklin, uh, Doc Conklin comes, horse and buggy gets there. Uh, they've got Dwight upstairs in the bedroom, and so they go up to Dwight, and Dwight's got a high fever. He's delirious. He's going in and out of consciousness and just back and forth. And so get upstairs, and after Doc Conklin looks at him, he goes outside and he talks to the parents. He says, look, this is really, really bad. He says, I think I can save his life if I take his leg off. He's young. He's strong. I think if I can take the leg off, get the infection out, most of the infection gone, he can fight the rest of it off. Well, he happened to be awake when he heard that, and no 12-year-old, no 13-year-old, nobody wants to lose their leg, but 13-year-old, he was a football player. He didn't want to lose his leg. So Doc goes downstairs, gets back in his horse and buggy. He's going back to the office to get the handsaw to come saw off the leg. So he's on his way back to the office, and Dwight calls in his older brother, Edgar. And Edgar is right here. He calls Edgar and he says, Edgar, come here. And Edgar comes in and says, Edgar, you promise me no matter what happens, you will not let them take my leg off. Dwight, they got to save your life, bro. You promise no matter what happens, you don't let them take my leg And it goes back and forth. And so finally, he says, okay. So what happens when Doc Conklin comes back up, goes upstairs, Edgar's blocking the door. And he's got the door, and sorry, Doc, you can't go in. Edgar, if I don't get in there, your brother's going to die. I'm sorry, Doc, you can't go in. Edgar? If I don't take care of your brother, he's going to die, and you'll be responsible for it because you're not letting me. I'm sorry, Doc. It's just he wouldn't move off. So Coughlin gets really angry. He marches downstairs really angry. He goes outside, and as he slams the door, he just shouts. He said, the only thing that will save that boy's life is a miracle. Well, his parents say, right, because their parents had been missionaries out on the western frontier with what they call the rendezvous, all the wild, wild guys that were in the frontiers and the trappers, etc. And they really start praying just heavily for, for Dwight. And, you know, after a day, it looks like it's actually not growing worse anymore. And after about two days, all the boys praying, it looks like it's actually starting to get a little smaller. And, and two weeks later, Dwight's back to himself. And Doc Conklin says, that is a miracle. That's the only. And so now here's the deal. If Dwight loses that leg, does he go in the military? Nope. Absolutely not. He does not go in the military. And if he does not go in the military, might things be different in World War II? Very likely they were. One of the reasons that, that Churchill loved Eisenhower above his own generals was Churchill thought outside the box on so many things. He didn't think like a military guy. He thought totally different. So we win World War II, and, and, and Dwight actually would give this testimony of, of the miracle after he became president. But striking, when he became president of the United States, elected 1953, 52 election, inaugurated 53, he said that after he had gone to church that morning, took communion, Union. He's on his way to inauguration. He said he was thinking about it and he says, America's just becoming too secular in 1953. America's too secular. What can I do to keep America from becoming secular? And he thought and he said, well, I'm not a preacher so I can't preach a sermon. And he said, I, I, I know what I can do. And so if you ever want to go on YouTube and watch the inauguration of Eisenhower, you'll see that after he was sworn in, he steps to the podium to give his inaugural address. And at that point in time, he tells everybody, bow your head, I'm gonna pray. 
And so he prayed his own inaugural prayer. This is the actual original inaugural prayer that Eisenhower prayed. We own about 160,000 documents um, related to American history, tons of stuff on, on the faith of the fathers and others. This is Eisenhower's prayer that he prayed at his inauguration. And you can watch on YouTube, it was not on the program at all. Uh, and, and all the political people are going, what? And everybody down there did bow their head and start praying. You know, it's kind of interesting to see the difference between the political people and the average people. They, they prayed and these other guys looking around like, what is this? So what happened is after Eisenhower gets in over those next two terms, he does so many things to put God back in the center of America. That's where we get under God added to the Pledge of Allegiance. He is the one who starts the Congressional Prayer Breakfast. Uh, he is the one who made sure we had a prayer room back here in the Capitol. They added that in 1954. It's a great prayer room back there for congressmen. Just so many things that Eisenhower did across that period of time. So he's another good one. You'd never think of him as a faith guy if you walked through here and saw these statues. But that's that's really cool. We don't have time to go back in there. Um, yeah, one other president right here. Uh, the white statue on the left is President James A. Garfield. He is the 18th president. People don't know, he was a minister of the gospel. He preached revival sermons during the Second Great Awakening. This is one of Garfield's letters right here in which he says he just finished preaching a revival service where that 34 folks came to Christ and he baptized 31 of them. Said he preached 19 times in that revival. What do you think if any president does that today? I'm, you're gonna have a problem. That's the kind of heritage and history we got, and that's why these statues are so cool in here. The Rotunda reopened after the War of 1812 when there had been destruction. Uh, from 1817 to 1823, Congress was meeting across the street where the U.S. Supreme Court meets now. And 1824, they reopened this Rotunda. When they reopened it, these four were done uh, by Jonathan Trumbull. Uh, Jonathan Trumbull's father was governor of Connecticut. His name was John Trumbull. Uh, John Trumbull's brother, his name was John Trumbull. Uh, John Trumbull's son, his name was John Trumbull. So it's really fun studying their history. And you're like, which one was that? I don't know. Uh, however, the John Trumbull that painted all of these, he actually personally knew the founding fathers. And as he painted these, he even got portraits of these individuals to make sure that as he was doing this, this was their likeness. Now, part of the reason that these are great, and, and, and to walk through real quick, this is the sign of the decoration. That was the, the first major victory at Saratoga. Uh, the third painting is the surrender of Cornwallis in Yorktown. And then the fourth painting is Washington uh, resigning his military commission. But why this really is great, especially for our conversation, is we live in an era of a, a not only a dishonest media, but we just have a dishonest society in so many ways. Uh, earlier today, I uh, was with some friends. We were at a historic site, and I literally, before we go in there, I pulled open uh, a document we read from the original document, and I said, okay, here's what it says. When we go in, they're gonna tell us this, right? Now, we just read this, but they're gonna tell us something. We live in a society that is very dishonest in the stories they tell because they're not as interested in telling the truth about what happens. They're more interested in promoting agendas, right? But in this kind of partisan divide in our nation, we have people that care more about their side winning than what's true. And, and I will remind you as Christians, why does it even matter to engage in some of this cultural debate? Because if we cannot win the reality of truth, the gospel will lose its effect. Yes. Because people will say, well, that's, that's fine for you, but my truth is, right, that's the world we live in. But there is no your truth and my truth. There is the, the truth, truth. Yeah. right? Now we can have opinions, but truth does exist. And 
part of what I want to walk you through is just understanding some of the the history of our nation in, in a different context. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and we didn't get a lot, watch, a lot, watch a lot of TV. We traveled a lot, but we did have radio. And somebody I loved radio spot every single day was a guy named Paul Harvey, <laughs> right? Paul Harvey had a segment called The Rest of the Story, right? You remember, and, and he would kind of tease the beginning and you're like, who is this? What are we talking about? And he would say, you know, the rest of the story. Part of what we have been learning in America, part of it's true. The narrative, the narrative that we have been hearing is only part of the story. Now, sometimes it's a very dishonest part of the story, right? Like, like even the Jamestown narrative, like 1619, right? They're only telling you part of the Jamestown narrative and part of the narrative they're telling you is not even correct in the narrative, right? Just to throw a monkey wrench already in the thought of the, the 1619 narrative. Okay, the idea from the 1619 project, New York Times official project, was that America began when the first slaves arrived in Jamestown. Okay, hard stop. Slavery was illegal in Jamestown in 1619. So there were people who had been slaves. And when they arrived in Jamestown, they became indentured servants. And some people would say, well, that's the same thing. Well, not in this case, right? Indentured servitude had a specified period of years for service, and it would go anywhere from two to three years all the way to 11 years. But the average was seven years of service. And in the Jamestown colony, if you were an indentured servant at the end of your indenture, okay? Now, as I'm telling you this, I would encourage you, don't trust me on this, look it up. Like, th this is not, something that nobody can find. This is available information online, not even hard to find. In the Jamestown colony, if you had completed an indenture, not only did you get your freedom, you were given a parcel of land. And depending on where you were in the Jamestown colony, it was between 40 all the way up to 250 acres. Those original 19 to 20 slaves that arrived in Jamestown in 1619 all became indentured servants. By 1633, the records of Jamestown identify that those individuals had been freed and not only owned their own property, they were indenturing other servants to work for them on their property. Okay, let me give you a hot take to f go further. They were on a Portuguese slave trading ship. They were attacked by a ship flying a Dutch flag being sailed by a British crew. It was a privateer ship, right? But they were under the Dutch flag. So that's what gave them the authority to do this they were basically like good guy pirates, right? That's kind of what they were. So this, this Dutch ship attacks this Portuguese slave trading ship and they conquer the ship. They take some of the goods off the ship and including 19 to 20 slaves. That, that number is not really well established, right? They're 19 or 20. But they go, we don't really have provisions. We don't have quarters. We don't have nothing to do with this. And as privateers, they're trying to make their money. They say, well, let's go sell them somewhere. The closest English colony was Jamestown. So they go to Jamestown. They go to Jamestown, they say, we want to sell slaves. And they say, we don't have slavery here. They're like, okay, what do you have? They say, well, we've indentured servitude. Cool. We want to sell you indentured servants, right? Because <laughs> the privateers just care about making money. But, but let me back you up. It was a Portuguese slave trading ship. Where did Portugal have holdings? They had holdings down in South America and some in Central America. And, and by the way, the, you could have argued maybe they were going to sell them in Cuba or Jamaica. And that's fine. If you look at Cuba and Jamaica, right? If you look at the holdings in South America, what was the average lifespan in the 1600s for a slave in Cuba, Jamaica, or South America? One to three years was the average lifespan. Had that Portuguese slave trade ship arrived in Cuba, Jamaica, South America, those slaves arguably likely would have been dead in one to three years, which means, again, hot take, 
one of the best things that possibly could have happened to them is that they were brought to America, where they became... Now, now the argument might go, right, but, 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 but they were... There's no way to say they were treated well while they were indentured servants. Fair. Because there are no records. We don't know how they were treated for the approximately seven years as indentured servants. We don't know. Maybe they were treated terribly. That's fair. Maybe they were. But we know at the end of that time, they were given freedom and they were given land. Right? Now, I'm not saying this is good, bad. That's indifferent. I'm just saying this is the rest of the story. And the Jamestown from the 1619 Project narrative is only telling you a part of the story. And part of how they tell the story is not even honest. It's the same distortion when it comes to many of the founding fathers, right? For 60 years, the founding fathers have been attacked and villainized. Back in the 60s and 70s, the, the leading arguments against the founding fathers is that they were sexually immoral, that they, they had affairs, they fathered illegitimate children. When you get to the 80s and 90s, the leading arguments against the founding fathers is they were secular. They were atheists, they were agnostics, they were deists. When you get to the 2000s up to present, the leading arguments are that they were all racist, bigoted slaveholders. For 60 years, they've been villainized. Now, this has been quite intentional. It's happened in the public education system. Why have we been villainizing the founding fathers for 60 years? I would argue it's because the people doing this in education, they weren't dumb. They knew that we will never be able to remove the Constitution unless we can demonize the guys who gave us the Constitution. Because if they're bad and evil and racist, then, right, that's the fruit of the poisonous tree, then, then the thing they gave us is bad, and therefore we can remove this. But the reality is nearly every accusation they make about the Founding Fathers is not correct substantially, historically, it's not accurate. But why do so many people believe it? Because in this painting, there's more than 40 Founding Fathers identified by face in this painting. Now, John Trumbull also listed all their names, right? But, but this is literally portraits of them. We know them. And yet, I travel throughout the year. I will go to high schools. I speak in universities. And I love to play this game. I, in my backpack, travel with $10 Chick-fil-A gift cards. And I will pull out a $10 Chick-fil-A gift card and I'll ask the students, right? And we're going to do this. And the kids are like, okay, Chick-fil-A, I want some. And I'm like, okay, if you can identify five of these founding fathers, you can have the gift card. I've had the same gift card for eight years. <laughs> right? Now, what happens is most adults, they shake their head and they're like, oh, education today is so terrible. And I'm like, hang on, adults. <laughs> like, how many of you would like to play my game? Right? But here's the reality. Why and how do people believe a lie? Because they don't know the truth. That's the only reason you believe a lie. If we knew the truth, we wouldn't stand and put up for any of this, right? There was a book done by a couple of professors at Cornell University called The Godless Constitution, done by Kramnik and Moore. It was done in the 90s. It is still used in universities today, okay? Now, the argument they make is that the Founding Fathers gave us a godless constitution because they themselves were godless. They said they were like one or two Christians. They were the weirdos. Nobody really believed them anyway, but the majority of them, they didn't believe in God and they didn't want God to be in America. They wanted America to be secular. That was the godless constitution. This is the claim they make. Now, wall builders, we have over 100,000 original documents from early American history, the majority of them from before 1812. We, I will tell you the whole time, right? Please don't take my word on this. Look it up. The reason, and, and, and candidly, here's why. The reason America has gotten in the trouble where you've gotten into is because we've just trusted the wrong people for way too yes. long. Yeah. And, and there can be well-intentioned people that can repeat something that's not correct. Right? It doesn't mean they were bad people. It doesn't mean they wanted to deceive us, but it does mean that we've just trusted information without verifying. If you, and, and really as a Christian, this should be a big deal. 
Because remember in Acts 17, when Paul was talking to the Bereans, right? The Bereans are the ones who wouldn't believe anything he said until he looked it up. And, and keep in mind, there is no New Testament yet, right? The Apostle Paul writes the majority of the New Testament that, that none of that exists yet. So he's telling them about Jesus, probably using things like Isaiah, the prophecies from Isaiah, right? And, and you can imagine, he's explaining to them from Isaiah, and they're like, wait a second, we don't trust this guy. Somebody get the scroll of Isaiah. And they do, and they look, and they're like, oh, that is what Isaiah said. All right, Paul, you may continue, <laughs> right? And remember, later on, Paul praises them. He understood no one would mislead them because they were pursuers of truth. In our modern culture, we have ceased to be pursuers of truth. Here's part of the problem, okay? Not just their argument. That's not the point I'm making right now. If you make this argument, what do you need to do? You need to substantiate it. You need to back it up. Well, if you're going to make all these claims about founding fathers, then you probably need to have sources that you're citing where all these claims come from. In the back of this book, when it comes to the note on sources, this is the note on sources. Okay, so they're going to identify where all the sources come from. It starts off because we've intended this book to reach a general audience and because the material we've cited is for the most part familiar to historians and political scientists, we have dispensed with the usual scholarly apparatus of footnotes. <laughs> That's two professors who don't document and cite anything. Okay, now in this book, they do say we do have some books we'd recommend to you. And if you look at the books they recommend, don't, don't even look at the titles, look at the dates. All of the books are from the 1980s, 1970s, 1960s. Now, we're talking about the Constitution, which was done in 1787. And they don't have a single source from before 1950 they encourage you to read. They want you to read all these modern professors' take on history instead of reading history and studying it for yourself. If we would actually read and study for ourselves, we would come to a different conclusion right. than what we've arrived at today. And with that in mind, when the Founding Fathers come together, they, they, they understand there's tension, there's problems, and Richard Henry Lee makes a motion that we're going to separate from Great Britain. And they say, okay, before, let's table that, because before we go there, we, we probably need to have a document that explains what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, how we're going to do it. So they pick a committee of five. Right here at the table is a committee of five. You have on the left is John Adams, and then right beside him, you have Sherman, then Livingston, then Jefferson, then Franklin. That's a committee of five. So they go and they draft the declaration. They come back, and on the table, they lay down, there's four pieces of paper they lay down. It was the original draft of the Declaration of Independence. This is the first printing of the original draft of the Declaration of Independence. This was done, Thomas Jefferson, he died in 1826. He and John Adams died on the same day. When he died, his grandson began collecting his papers and found the original draft. When he found the original draft, he was going to come out with a, a, a multi-volume set of Jefferson's writings. And he said, people would love to see right, the original draft. And so he went and he made a copy, kind of what we would know as like an ink lift. They took another document, put it on top, they wet down the document, they lifted the document off, and it took actual ink off the original onto the copy. From that copy, they went and made an engraving plate, and then they printed these copies. This was from the first printing of the original draft to go in Jefferson's multi-volume set of his writings. The reason this matters. now. As, as we look at this, it's four pages, which is what they present there. The, the beginning of it, it says, a declaration of the representatives of the United States of America and general Congress symbol. But the words United States of America are fully capitalized. Okay, the rest is in cursive. And what's also kind of fun about this is as you go through this document on, on the side, 
you're going to see edits throughout the document. On the side, at times, you will see somebody's name. That says Dr. Franklin. That says Mr. Adams. It actually showed the name of the person making the edits. This is like the early Google work now. <laughs> we're, we're teamwork. We're together. Team project. And we actually see who makes the edits in this document. Well, on the first page. Now, as I'm also showing you this, you can look this up online. You can find high-res images online. You can read this tonight, right? Like this is not a special thing that only we have. This is readily available. But as it starts off, the second paragraph is where he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, government is among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the government. Okay, phrases we know, that's the second paragraph. Well, when you get to the second page, it begins listing grievances. All the reasons we're gonna separate from the king. When you get to the third page, it continues listing grievances. And then the fourth page is their summation, concluding with, uh, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, okay? In the original draft, there were 24 grievances. The last grievance is the longest grievance. It's nearly half of the third page. The longest grievance in the original draft of the declaration starts this way. He, meaning the king, has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur a miserable death in their transportation thither. That's a slave trade. Okay, now this is the longest grievance in the original draft. It's a grievance against a slave trade. That's the opening sentence. It continues. It says, this piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, and let's pa pause for a second. It says piratical warfare. What does is, what is piratical warfare mean? It's, that's the warfare of pirates. Yes. And it's, it's the warfare of the infidel pirates, the, the, the non-Christian pirates. Well, who were the non-Christian pirates? They were the Barbary pirates. They were the Muslim pirates from North Africa who began the North Atlantic slave trade, okay? He says, this piratical warfare, the appropriate infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian King of Great Britain. The word Christian is printed and underlined to draw your attention to it. This is, the, the warfare of the Muslim pirates is now the warfare of the Christian King of Great Britain determined to keep open the market where men should be bought and sold. The word men is fully capitalized. Why does that matter? Because when Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, guess who was included in that? All men everybody, including the Africans who are being enslaved. Now, why does that matter? Because literally the argument today is that all the founding fathers are racist, right? Okay, this is the original draft. Now, it's not in the final draft, why? Because when the Committee of Five goes back and they present the original draft, John Hancock, sitting in his chair, John Hancock, the President of Congress, said they're only gonna include in the final draft what is unanimously agreed to because if they put anything else in there, the king might be able to come in and pull them apart by their own local separate interests. So whatever they do has to be in unison. And this is also where Franklin says, surely we must all hang together or else we will all hang separately, right? <laughs> they understood there has to be unity. Thomas Jefferson, he identified, he wrote this in his journal. He said that when they came to this grievance against the slave trade, arguing for the humanity of these slaves, he said there were two states that opposed it. Georgia and South Carolina. Because they said, up to this point, we haven't tried to end the slave trade. We haven't tried to end slavery, so we that's not a grievance we have. Jefferson lamented in his writings. He lamented how sad it was that 
there weren't more northern abolitionists arguing more strongly to try to convince these delegates from Georgia and South Carolina that, that we could have stopped this evil right where it was. Well, it didn't make it in the final draft. However, 11 of the 13 colonies voted in favor of it. Once we separated from Great Britain, every single northern colony began passing laws for the abolition of slavery. By 1804, every single northern colony had passed laws for the abolition of slavery. The only reason it even took to 1804 was because of New Jersey and New York. It took them a little longer to figure it out, right? But here's what's interesting. England ended slavery in 1833. And England is credited with being right the first nation to end slavery. England was 30 years behind the New England colonies in America, okay? And by the way, when people talk about the founding fathers being racist, there definitely were some racist founding fathers. You know where the majority of them were from? Georgia and South Carolina. Correct. Right? Now, you might find one or two in New York. You might find one here and there. But, but again, this is where, when, when, when we are learning history today, they're telling us a part of the story without telling us the whole story. There is way more to the story. And even if we back up and we talk about what, what are these arguments we've heard against the Founding Fathers for 60 years, let's, let's say, okay, slavery we've talked about a little bit. Let's talk about the religious faith of the Founding Fathers. Because we are today, well, they're, right, they're atheists, agnostics, deists, or separation of church and state. We are all these things today. The reason all of those things are so silly is, again, we'd only believe that by not knowing who they were. There was actually a pastor who was a pastor at the time they signed the declaration. His name was John Witherspoon. He was the president of Princeton University, and at the time he was the president of Princeton University, he was the pastor on the campus, ends up becoming a founding father. And how did he even get to Princeton? James Wilson and Benjamin Rush recruited him from Scotland. He was a pastor in Scotland. He was part of the Scottish revivals, the Scottish awakening that was going on. And they said, we need that kind of leader leading this denomination. Princeton, they recruited him to come to America knowing who he was. He came to America as a very outspoken religious leader. One of the things he did in the state of New Jersey, he's responsible for this Bible. This was considered a family Bible. He advocated, went to the legislature, went to the leaderships, the guys, we need a Bible in our state because there are people in our state who don't have their own copy of the Bible. And they did this copy of the Bible and distributed it throughout the state so that if there was anybody in the state who didn't have a Bible, they could have one. And they called it a family Bible because it was large enough your family could sit around the dinner table and read it together. This, this was a family Bible study Bible done literally by a pastor, a signer of the Declaration. Oh, that's a great one. Okay. This was done by Francis Hopkinson. Francis Hopkinson, another signer of the Declaration, he was from Pennsylvania. Well, not only designed the Declaration, he actually designed uh, two different flags, one for the Navy, uh, one for America, and actually, he's considered the designer of the first American flag. That flag was not the one that ultimately was used, so he's kind of forgotten. He designed several U.S. seals, some that are still in use today. Uh, there are different governmental seals. However, my favorite thing about him is before he was part of the Revolution, which he also acted as chaplain for part in Revolution, before the Revolution, he was on staff at his church. He was a musician. But and now saying on staff is, is a little relative, but he worked for the church. But what he did, he was the organist and he was the choir director at his church. This is a book he did. It's considered the first purely American hymn book. He put music before, before him in America, most hymn books, they were just words, right? And you'd have somebody get up with your cancer. They, they would sing a line, you'd repeat the line. He actually put music to the different hymns, but the hymn book he wrote was called the Psalms of David because the first thing he put to music was the 150 Psalms. Now, 
if anybody's musically inclined, or if you're at a church and you have like a cocky youth minister who plays like guitar, right? You're like, all right, kid, cool. Put the 150 psalms to music because that's crazy. 150 psalms, and also if you remember, right? Psalms 119 <laughs> is a really, really big psalm. It is 32 pages in this hymn book. <laughs> at what church service are you singing? <laughs> Right? That's crazy. Right? You're singing, you're like, oh man, let's just sing that again. You're like, nope, I'm out. We're done. But but here's what I want to point out. Okay? I, I, I've only gone through two. I can literally go through almost everybody, and we actually have several Bibles from several others. The point I want to quickly make, because we have so much more to cover and we want to wrap up before it gets too late tonight. If we did a basic brief study of these guys, who they were and what they did, we'd quickly realize they're not the irreligious people that we're told they were, right? They're not the atheist, agnostic, and deist. They didn't want to separate from church state the way we think of it today. It's just that we don't know their stories anymore. Even a guy like John Hancock, we have several different original proclamations from him. We have four original proclamations, and by proclamations, prayer proclamations from John Hancock. As governor, he had 22 prayer proclamations. Okay, in this prayer proclamation, it's a proclamation for fasting, humiliation, and prayer, and he's calling on this one, calling upon ministers and people of every denomination to assemble on that day in their respective congregations that with true contrition of heart, we may confess our sins, resolve to forsake them, and implore the divine forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus Christ is fully capitalized. Okay, John Hancock is known for a famous signature. Nobody knows about his faith, and yet, he had 22 prayer proclamations, and he talks about God and Jesus and all of them. The only reason we think they're secular is because we've never studied their actual writings, right? This is the reality that we want to challenge you with, is part of, and yeah, more proclamations, uh, Sam Adams, John Trumbull, part of what we want to help encourage and show you is a little bit, you need to have the Paul Harvey mentality, right? That there, there's more to the story. What's the rest of the story, right? Because if we'd be pursuers of truth, we wouldn't buy the lies we're being fed in culture. And by the way, maybe some of us don't buy the lies, but I guarantee you, your kids and grandkids, the young people in your congregations, this is what they are learning, and they don't have anything to counterbalance to know what's true. They are buying this nonsense hook, line, and sinker because they don't know the truth. And if we aren't people who will learn and discover the truth, we won't be able to share the truth, and we won't be able to help guide them through the nonsense they are learning. Now, we could spend time, and we could talk about, uh, well, there's Truman, who was a man of faith, but then there's Grant, there's Lincoln, there's Garfield back there, or even over here. If you are up in D.C. and you go to the MLK Memorial, I was just there two nights ago. You know what is not mentioned one time in the MLK Memorial? His faith. His faith, not even one time. Doesn't mention God anywhere. He was a pastor. The letter from a Birmingham jail wasn't just the ravings of a madman. It was a pastor calling out other pastors, saying, you should be in here with me. We are now teaching him as his great abolitionist, ignoring the fact that he was a pastor, right? And by the way, even it's a good example, as we talk about all these individuals, the other thing that we have lost in culture is a, a basic Christian understanding known as the depravity of man or the sinful human nature, right? Because if you don't know MLK, he had some issues, right? He did. You know what? So does every single one of these founding fathers and every single one of these presidents. Why can I sit up with confidence? Because the Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our starting place 
is that everybody's jacked up and needs Jesus. Right? That's my starting place. But that also means that I'm not going to be surprised when we see somebody have a fleshly moment. That's expected. What's more surprising and what's more impressive is how God used fallen and perfect people and does amazing things through them. That's their story, right? Read Hebrews 11 as a refresher sometime, okay? R remind yourself, Samson is in our faith hall of fame. Rahab is in our faith hall of fame, right? Moses, murderer, faith hall of fame. David, right? The murdering adulterer, right? And, and also keep in mind he's a terrible father. If you didn't know that, right? Go back and study Amnon, Absalom, right? Adonijah. David's a terrible father. These are losers in real life. And yet God used them in such incredible ways because God is not limited to using perfect people because they don't exist. The reason Jesus came is because none of us are perfect. But if we lose the basic Christian understanding of life and reality, then what happens is we see what we saw the last couple of years, we're going to cancel everybody. You don't cancel people that are sinful. You recognize everybody's sinful, and that's why Jesus came, because we're never, none of us could earn our salvation. None of us are good enough, and yet, somehow God is able to use imperfect people and do great things through them. This is part of the American story and narrative that we've forgotten today, but it's fundamentally true. All right, we're gonna go into Statuary Hall. So very soon, Billy Graham will be in here. Well, a lot of people look at Billy Graham and they're like, okay, clearly we know who that guy was. But you could look at Marcus Whitman and not recognize that Marcus Whitman was also a minister and a pastor. Although if you look at what's under his right arm, that's a Bible. He was one of the guys that opens up the Oregon territory, opens up Washington state. He was a missionary going out to do that. This is where if you start to learn the stories, you realize how many individuals in here were so influenced by faith, were led by faith, even in the back. Daniel Webster, there's so many fun stories we could tell about him. Uh, defender of the Constitution, literally was a hero of the faith. He was so outspoken in his Christian faith and actually he was known as one of the best orators there was in America at that time. Uh, he said that he thought the only way you could be a really good public orator was to practice reading the Bible out loud. And so in his office, he would actually practice reading the Bible in his office. And there are records from the day of people saying they would come and they would sit outside his office just to listen to him practice. And the things they loved to hear in practice were Isaiah, right? Where there's kind of the prophecies happening. But one of the fun ones that I love to imagine as people talked about, they loved hearing him read the book of Job out loud because he would read it in character. Right? Because remember, I mean, there's Job, right? And there's all the friends that come. And they said when, when he would get to chapter 38 where God shows up, they said that the door would rattle on the hinges as he would yell with God's booming voice. And also, just so you know, for some of these might be a challenge, uh, God is, has a great sense of humor. And God is not above using mocking sarcasm at times. And go back and read Job 38 if you need a reminder. Right? Where he calls Job out. He's like, hey, boy. Why don't you put on your big boy pants? We're going to have a conversation, right? Now, Bible way, he says, gird up your loins because we're going to talk. And then he says, hey, Joe, where were you when I created the foundation? Like, surely you remember. You were there. You must know. <laughs> Tell me God's not sarcastic, right? But Daniel Webster would read that out loud, and people love to come and listen. Well, this is a guy who's the 
most incredible speaker in America at that time, and he says you can't be a good public order without practicing reading your Bible out loud. We literally can go through so many individuals. Junior uh, Paracero, the guy over here from California, unfortunately, there are people in California trying to cancel him right now because they don't know their history. Uh, does so much mission work uh, defending Native Americans from actually the government taking away their property. Does stuff to open up orphanages, works with lepers. Uh, to the left is Lou Wallace. He's the guy, uh, was a commander, was a governor, a general in the uh, Civil War, was a governor out in New Mexico, did a lot of really remarkable, impressive things, but what he was most famous for was a book he wrote. It was Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And he wrote it as an apologetic because he had just talked to uh, Robert Ingersoll, who was the, he was known as, as uh, the spokesman for uh, agnosticism or the leading agnostic, but really he was arguing that there shouldn't be God in Christianity. It's all done, we shouldn't have it. He had a conversation. At the end of the conversation, it was for several hours. He realized that Robert Ingersoll said several things that he didn't know as a Christian how to argue against. He didn't know the apologetics. So he said, I need to study and see if this is real or not. So he studied, discovered it was real, and at the end wanted to write a book that was an apologetic for his Christian faith, but helping other people see the connection. And the story, Ben-Hur, Tell the Christ, is a story of Judah Ben-Hur, who is a Jewish person living in the time of Jesus, but he's a skeptic. He didn't believe in Jesus. And yet, in his life, he encounters Jesus multiple times, ends up at the end believing that Jesus is real, the Son of God. Well, when that came out in 1880, it's not all that long after the Civil War, and it was a very dark time in America, because you have right 600 plus thousand people that have lost their lives. You have all these people that have gone through these terrible injuries, and, and, and brother against brother, so much darkness. His book was credited with helping America remember God and remember a conscience. He brought America back to God. That's the reason he became so famous. Arguably, that's the reason he has a statue here. It's not because he was a governor. It's not because he was a general. It's because of a book he wrote, and his book was about Jesus, was about Christ. Again, if we started to learn these stories, we would realize that a lot of these stories, the reason these people were important was because of their faith. Their faith motivated who they were and what they did. In fact, a great example, uh, right down here on the ground, that this little metal gold plate, that is the plate of John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, one of the most impressive resumes of any American ever, because he grew up the son of John and Abigail Adams, grew up in the middle of the revolution. When he was eight years old, he stood on a hillside with his mom and they watched the Battle of Bunker Hill happen. At the Battle of Bunker Hill, the, uh, Dr. Joseph Warren was shot, he was bayoneted to death, and that, that was their family friend, their, their family doctor. He watched Dr. Joseph Warren be killed and his father comes home, the, the, the Massachusetts Minutemen used to practice their musket drills in front of John Adams' home, and John Adams came home one day, pulls a musket down, gives it to his eight-year-old son, says, son, you need to go out and start training with the Minutemen. We don't know when you might need to be able to use this. Eight years old, like this is a reality check now. I feel like that's a pretty cool reality check for an eight-year-old boy too, right? If dad shows up, gives me a gun, he's like, hey son, Navy SEALs are on their way, you need to go train? I'm like, yes, I'm in, right? Let's do this, that'd be awesome. With that being said, this, he grows up in the middle of the revolution. Uh, he, he gets to go with his dad when he's 11 years old. He received an official congressional appointment to be the official secretary to America's diplomat over to Paris. That was his father, but he's a secretary. At the age of 14, he received a second congressional appointment to go before the throne of uh, Catherine the Great in Russia. This time, he wasn't somebody's secretary. He was part of the diplomatic team and staff. He was the official interpreter because as a 14-year-old, he was already fluent in six languages, okay? Now, that's good for a 14-year-old. It gets even better because when he gets into his early 20s, George Washington became president. George Washington chose John Quincy Adams to be a diplomat for America. At the end of Washington's presidency, he said that John Quincy Adams was the best diplomat America had, bar none. John 
Adams becomes president, makes John Quincy Adams again America's top diplomat. Thomas Jefferson became president, and John Quincy Adams, John Adams actually called his son home, John Quincy Adams, after the, the very fierce political presidential battle. And he said, hey, I don't want you working for that guy. You come on home. We're leaving that guy alone. So he gets called back. He gets elected to be a U.S. Senator under Jefferson. Then under James Madison, Madison calls him back out of like diplomatic retirement to be America's top diplomat. He negotiates the end of the War of 1812. Also, during his time as a diplomat overseas in Europe, he was nominated and unanimously approved by the Senate to be a Supreme Court Justice. He wrote Madison back and said, I really don't have time for that right now. Uh, like, what do you think of the Supreme Court that you're like, ah, I'm gonna turn that down, not a, not a big deal, right? Like, the court didn't used to be what we think it is today, right? It's a lot different today. With that being said, under James Monroe, he became uh, elected, or he was chosen rather to be the Secretary of State, and then he became the sixth president of the United States of America. He is the only president, after being president, that he felt like there was still such a purpose for his life. He said that he wanted to do something. He gets elected to Congress. He says there is a great evil that is yet to be remedied. It was the evil of slavery. He became the leader of the anti-slavery movement, which my dad uh, slid a couple things in front. You want to, I guess, me to show you. Uh, this is a letter from uh, Lou Wallace, where Lou Wallace is writing a friend about the story of Ben-Hur, and he's actually telling about the chariot scene from Ben-Hur. Uh, this is a book. It's called John Quincy Adams' Letters to His Son. While he was a diplomat under Madison during the War of 1812, his son, John Quincy Adams' son, his name was George Washington Adams, which I always wondered how his dad felt about that, right? He's like, Dad, I love you, but my real hero is George Washington. So George Washington Adams is nine, he's 10 years old, while dad's a diplomat gone. John Quincy Adams wrote nine letters back to his son, and more than nine, but these specific nine letters were nine letters about how to study the Bible for yourself and get the most out of your Bible study. When he became president, people found out about those letters and they said, we would love to have that to share with our kids, share that wisdom with the nation. So they took those letters, they made it into a book. This book is still available today. You can get it as an ebook, you can get it on Kindle. It's great letters, but it's John Quincy Adams' letters to his son about how to study the Bible, get the most out of Bible study. With that being said, after presidency, he's in Congress. He served for 17 years in Congress. And this little gold plate is marking the spot where they believe his desk would have been. Okay, so this is the general area where he would have been. And he came, again, he said that there's a great evil yet to be remedied, evil of slavery. He became the leader of the anti-slavery movement. So he came to fight and oppose slavery. He said at the time, Congress was about 80% pro-slavery. Now, on paper, Congress wasn't 80% pro-slavery, but it's kind of like probably saying today that Republicans are against big government spending. And you're like, I don't think they really are, right? He said when he got there, like the majority of Congress was not against slavery. It was only about 20% that were actually fighting against slavery. And so he has this major uphill battle. As he battles year after year after year, bringing petitions and bringing legislation, he's working in committee, he has no success to speak of, legislatively speaking. A reporter came to him after years of this and said, Mr. Adams, you've been fighting for all these years. There have been no visible signs of success. How do you stay motivated to do this? And his answer to the reporter was based on his life motto. He wrote that his life motto is duty is ours, results are God's. What he told the reporter, he said, it's only up to me to do the right thing. It's up to God what happens after that. Which is an amazing perspective, right? Well, as you can imagine, 
in Congress, there's every two years you have new congressmen coming in, and John Quincy Adams knew every founding father personally. He had been a diplomat all over Europe, knew all these kings and queens, all these important people, and because of that, as all these freshmen were coming in, they're like, that's John Quincy Adams, and they wanted to be friends with him. Well, John Quincy Adams didn't care about making friends, he just wanted to end slavery. And so he was known as kind of a gruff around the edges guy, but he was so passionate against slavery. Well, the anti-slavery movement begins to grow. There's more and more people joining onto his movement. He's the leader, he's the voice of that movement. His last term in Congress, there was a freshman congressman who was elected, and the freshman congressman joins the movement. John Quincy Adams gives all these speeches, they have all these meetings, strategy sessions, there's freshmen's a part of it. John Quincy Adams, they say he stood up, they thought he was gonna make a motion, because he raised his hand, but then he clutched his chest, he fell down on his desk, had a stroke, they took him back into that room right there, and he ends up dying on a couch in that room. That couch, by the way, is still in that room. Uh, that's actually the women's cloakroom today, uh, which I don't know how many women actually know that as they're sitting on the death couch, but uh, nonetheless, that couch is still in that room, and when he dies, the, the anti-slavery movement is very strong at this point, but this is the main face, this is the main voice of the movement who's now gone. And so, as you can imagine, all these people are saying, hey, we're gonna help, we're gonna make a difference. Well, this young freshman wants to be part of this movement still. So he ran for re-election, except he got defeated. Not to be discouraged, he ran again. Got defeated a second time. Then he ran for Senate and got defeated. Then he ran for state office and got defeated. He didn't win another election until he became the president. It was Abraham Lincoln. If you look right back there, there's another gold plate on the ground. It's Abraham Lincoln's, okay? They were in Congress in this room together. And by the way, Abraham Lincoln is a guy credited with ending slavery, exceeding the Emancipation Proclamation. He lays the foundation for the 13th Amendment. He's the guy credited with ending slavery. I will point out, John Quincy Adams was the guy who was a major mentor for Abraham Lincoln, okay? And John Quincy Adams fought his entire life for something he never saw realized in his lifetime. Okay, this is a big deal. Because we are living in an era where we have so many issues and problems in our nation that if we don't have some John Quincy Adams to step up, if they're not willing, right, if we're not willing to fight for what is right, even if we don't see success, We'll never lay the foundation for success to happen. John Quincy Adams had no idea he mentored the very guy who's gonna get this job done. And yet, that's how God used him in this journey along the way, as we also look at that. This is not a far-fetched thought because you back up to 1973 when the US Supreme Court said abortion's a constitutional right, Roe versus Wade. How many Christians at that point said, all right, we gotta stop this? For 49 years, it was a Supreme Court decision upheld, recognizes the law of the land. Now, the Supreme Court doesn't make law, but people got confused, right? They're like, it's the law. Okay, the reality was abortion was legal 49 years. There were people that fought the rest of their life and they died and never saw Roe versus Wade overturned. But who knows the impact they had in the movement that helped fuel the rising generation to be the ones to get the job done, right? This is part of what we want to encourage you with. Is, is we're going to kind of wrap up thoughts here. Uh, we don't want to make it a super long night, but there's a, one or two more things we want to do. But I want to wrap up this thought. Where we are in our culture is we need a lot more John Quincy Adams, which is the older generation. And we need a lot more Abraham Lincoln's, who's the rising generation, which means that all of us who are from an older generation, we have to be looking for the rising generation that we can pour into, that we can mentor right as we take a stand and that means everybody else who's younger 
they need to be looking for people to disciple them, to mentor them, to receive, so they can step forward with that next calling. As we say this, this is where, as we look at our nation, right? This, this is where I love the story of America. America is not the story of a perfect people. It's a story of how God used imperfect people and accomplished great things in the nation because also, even like this story, John Quincy Adams, Abraham Lincoln, amazing people. They weren't perfect. They were definitely flawed individuals. And yet God used them to advance not just America, but society and civilization in the world. America's always been a leader for the world. And we're not always the first, but we're always at the beginning. When America ended slavery, we were the fourth major nation in the world in slavery. People look today and they're like, oh man, America was so late. We were number four out of 128, right? That's still pretty good. You're the beginning of the pack. However, I'll back up and say England, sure, 1833, the New England States did it 30 years before England did. And you know in England, when they were arguing for the end of slavery, you know one of the phrases they used in England was all men are created equal. Guess where they learned that phrase, right? America's always been a leader in this. And I wanna encourage you as pastors, right? This is where our nation will rise and fall with how well we follow biblical principles. That's right. Right? And, and, and I'm not worried about the preservation of America independently. That's not what this is about. I care about the future and the souls of our kids, but I would much rather our kids live in freedom, in biblical principles and biblical standards and, and right, biblical morality than to grow up not having the same opportunities, the same choices, the same right things that we would want them to enjoy. And, and even as I say this, this is where some people are like, well, you're just being a Christian nationalist. We misunderstand this so much. The argument from people that are against Christian nationalists, they say, Christians, you shouldn't push your morals because you're trying to make the nation Christian. Every nation follows a moral code. It's just what moral code they're going to follow. Amen. So then the only argument we should have is what is the best moral code, right? Because the founding fathers said our, our constitution, John Adams said our constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. George Washington said, religion and morality, indispensable support to political prosperity. You have to have morality. It's only a question of whose morality is best. There's never been a better moral teacher than Jesus. And to go a little further, and by the way, that's where people say you're Christian nationalists. No, again, you misunderstand this. Jeremiah 29, most people have memorized verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, right? We know the verse. Back up about six verses. Jeremiah tells the people in captivity, don't stop getting married. Don't stop having kids. Don't stop raising families. He said, in fact, you should seek the good of the land in which you are living. Because when it goes well with the land, it will go well with you. It's not a perverted thought inside of Christianity to think that we want America to do well. This is a thought every Christian should think no matter where they live. If you live in Japan, you should pray for the success, stability, prosperity, righteousness in Japan. Or if you lived in South Korea, or if you lived in South Africa or Brazil, like it doesn't matter. This is as Christians what we should be doing. And this is where we want to encourage and challenge you. We could spend literally days, maybe even weeks, just telling stories about these people, who they were, what they did. But where we are, historically speaking, and looking at this, is the better we have done following biblical standards and principles, the better our nation has done. Well, well, how do we do better following those principles? It's always been based on the leadership of the church and pastors. When pastors have stood up with courage and boldness, the nation has done better. 
When pastors have been afraid to engage the culture, we have not done a good job. And some people are like, wait a second, like, ah, I don't know if we can do this. There's been so many misconceptions, whether it be the Johnson Amendment, right? We're 501c3, so many things that we have bought into that first of all, aren't biblical, but secondly, they're not historical. We just finished up our capital tour with David Barton. Tanya? Wow, a lot of... A lot happened, I think. Unbelievable information. I mean, yes. when you realize the Christian heritage that America was founded on, you're blown away. I mean, the news today would make it feel like, oh, we're not even supposed to be a Christian nation. We're not even, yes. we're supposed to, we're not allowed to have the Bible in schools. We're not allowed to have the Ten Commandments. To learn this weekend or this week that all of that has been turned around, the Bible actually can be in schools, the Ten Commandments not only can, but is possible to be on display in the, in the classrooms. And there are states and there are uh, people on school boards that are actually trying to make this happen. Unbelievable. Yeah, I think also it's so easy to get discouraged of the state of affairs of what's going on in the world, just because media is literally just wanting all the negative, but there, uh, there, there's just so much going on in the background. And it was so encouraging to see how many senators are that are faith-believing men that are fighting for our freedom to keep and just encouraging pastors and everything to keep on being faithful, preach the, preach the truth and just praying for our nation to get back. How many was, I mean, we heard from probably 10, 10 different, so. you know, senators or house of representatives and yep. uh, members. And, and they said, listen, we, we could have had 70, we could have had 80 different strong Christian people from the Capitol come here and talk to you guys. Yes. So he said, this is just a, a sprinkling. And that was encouraging to me because you, you, again, you're only shown the bad. Yes. You're not, the good is not talked about enough. They're real. It, we are teetering at, on uh, America. The, the Republic is, is it's, it's difficult right now. We are in difficult situations, battling the people that are in our government that are against our government. But at the same time, there really is hope. Uh, and a lot of that hope lies in you. I, I tell you another yes. thing that was interesting for me is how many times they would stand there behind the podium and say, hey, we can't fix your problems. Right. You are the ones there at home. You have to do the work. You have to be involved in local government. You have to be involved. Uh, who was it that said, um, somebody said, oh, Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. And she said, well, if you take all the Christians out, you're leaving politics to the Philistines. I mean, is that really what you want to do? So get involved, do something that's going to make a difference uh, for, for your country, for your, it's for your fellow mankind is the reality. Who do you want in charge of making the rules, making the laws for your fellow mankind, for the people around you, for your neighbors, for your friends? Why not be somebody who's leading and leading wisely and leading with righteousness? Why not get involved? So uh, I was yeah. challenged, I was encouraged. And just praying, praying yes. for these men that are out here fighting this evil and uh, just praying for strength and for boldness and courage for them to stand up and and uh, kind of to have Christians rally around them as well in prayer. Here's another uh, just cool thought. They, they compared, David Barton did a whole program on uh, Jamestown versus Plymouth. Uh, the 1619 project was done on Jamestown and they messed up a lot of the facts about what really happened at Jamestown. That was not when slavery got started in America. It was indentured servitude and they pointed out the fact that it wasn't until 1654 that it was legally the very first what we would call chattel slavery. A guy was able to own somebody for life. 1654 before that it was illegal it was not allowed uh, 
but, but the first one who did that was actually a black man owning another black man. They, they don't tell you that in the 1619 Project. And they compared that to Plymouth and the pilgrims that came to Plymouth. That was fascinating that to actually hear so when they founded it on the word of God and said individuals are responsible and then we have family and then we have church and then we have civil government and they put the onus all the way back on the individual to say you are accountable to God, which is what the Bible says. And the four different areas of government starts with individual government before God, then family government, then church government, and then last, like, okay, now you've got civil government. Um, it was really a, a, a an eye-opening experience to see that it was, it, it's, it's people that took individualism and accountability to God personally, seriously, that led to all the good things that happened in America, the, the, the great things, the prosperous times, uh, all that happened when we understood individual accountability to God. Uh, the socialism, Marxism view based on atheism is, it doesn't work, it's not, uh, it's not healthy, it's not effective. Uh, it leads toward disorder, it leads towards laziness, and Jamestown was a great example of uh, of a socialist system and how it did not work. Do you remember 400 and 430, 490, yeah, 490 Jane were in Jamestown. One bad winter when the king didn't send enough supplies to them to hold them over because they didn't plant, they weren't working hard, they were the socialist country. And how 60 were left survived. at the end of that, survived at the end of that winter. And you go, 430 that they resorted to camp they told stories they resorted to cannibalism all kinds of horrors because they didn't take god's word seriously our founding fathers they took god's word seriously and you should do how many hours a day would the plymouth uh with the people of plymouth spend in the word of god two to five hours a day a day in the bible yeah. what a oh, knife in the heart to say are, are we actually doing anything in the word of god daily to study that so bottom line god whew. god knows what he's doing he wrote it in the book for us and if we follow it it's it's a guarantee to work yeah his design works hello the, if you follow the manufacturer's instructions it actually works who knew well it's a it's a challenge for you and it's a challenge for me but it's a challenge in our personal lives are you following god's direction in your finances are you following God's direction in your family? Are you following God's direction in your encouragement to others to, to be iron that sharpens iron, to, to, to follow the word of God? Um, you know, I, I, I had a guy come up to me, this is a couple months ago. He's like, oh, love your ministry, man. Love what you guys do. Oh, I've watched all this stuff. And he's a drug addict and he talks about his sex, is a, sex addiction and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, you don't. I said, obviously it's not working. The whole reason we do this is so that you will decide I'm gonna honor God with my life. So, so don't tell me, the people of Jamestown claim to be Christians as well, but they didn't practice Christianity. The people of Plymouth claim to be Christians and practice Christian principles, the they applied it. So I'm just, I'm telling you guys, uh, we don't need to just call ourselves Christians, not just call ourselves people that follow Christ. We need to be people that follow Christ. Faith without works is a dead faith. That's a lot of the problem that we see today as well. So yes, be the light. <sighs> you you got to come on a tour with Wall Builders. David Barton, Tim Barton, their whole team puts on an incredible, incredible tour. Uh, you should sponsor your pastor to come on this trip to the Capitol, yes. get a tour of the Capitol, which is incredible. So amazing. And then get the behind the scenes with all these senators and congressmen and congresswomen and talking to them specifically about what's going on in the nation. Uh, it will it Encourage. will edify. 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. very much. You do leave. You leave challenged, but you leave encouraged, don't you? Right. Yeah. It yes. really is awesome. Man, what an incredible time. Well, let's, uh, let's, there was a quote that I just read by John Jay in the Federalist Papers. I'm reading the Federalist Papers and it was, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'll, I'll put it on the screen. It's, it was something to the effect of, if this, if America is ever to be gone, may it leave with a goodbye that's a sorrowful, tearful goodbye because of what it was. And uh, if the Republic doesn't stand, may it go with tears in people's eyes because of what it was. There is still no greater government in the world than what our founding fathers gave us through the truths of scripture in the United States of America. God save our country.